it's so good to be back with you all this week. Listen, I think if we were to ask Jesus, if we were to have a conversation with Jesus January 1 of 2022, and we were to say, what is the most important week of ministry at Journey in 2022? He would say, your kids can't. Just like he told his disciples, you got to let the little children come to me because people with a faith like theirs are people who truly understand the kingdom. So for those of you who are going to be working our kids camp this week, thank you for moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and friends and neighbors who are going to be dropping kids off. Thank you. And if you haven't yet decided, show up tomorrow morning and bring your kids for kids camp. We will be planting seeds this week that will remain in kids' spirits for the rest of their life. Please let us help them understand who Jesus is and how much Jesus loves them. It's going to be an incredible, incredible week. Pray for our ministry team and everyone that's going to be here Monday through Thursday, pouring into the lives of children like Jesus would want us to. Matthew chapter 14 is where we are in our Bible study time today. You can grab your notes out of your bulletin so that you can follow along. Go ahead and turn there. Maybe fire up your Journey Church International app. If you're pretty brand new, to church and you don't have a Bible or didn't bring a Bible, don't worry about it. We planned for you to be here. Every scripture that I read will be on the screen, so it'll be really easy to follow along. If you have not yet downloaded the Bible app, you'll have the entire Bible in your smartphone or your electronic device that'll help you follow along anytime you're in an environment that uses scripture. But Matthew chapter 14 is where we're going to be today. So the last time I preached at Journey was May 15, a couple weeks ago, before we left for after Casey's graduation, our senior trip, and then a little family reunion with my mom and dad and my sisters just south of Chicago the past couple weeks. And I was scrolling on my phone before I preached on May 15th, just looking at some of the sparse details that were beginning to come in of a mass shooting in a Buffalo supermarket where a white supremacist had come in and he had killed 10 African Americans in the parking lot and in a grocery store. I didn't really know enough about it to say much. I was just beginning to read a little bit about it the last time that I preached. A few days later, I'd be sitting in an airplane on a runway in Phoenix when the alert would hit my phone that another elementary school shooting had occurred. The last one that had happened um, at Sandy Hook Elementary, I was sitting on an airplane in Colorado. So it was kind of a flashback of here I am sitting on a plane again getting a message that young children have been killed by a mass shooter. And like many of you, I tried to just, I tried to wrap my spirit around what was happening and how I should properly engage so that God could be near to my heart and I could be near to his. And I'll be really honest, I did not feel like in the time right after those events, um, I did not feel like giving a lecture on civil liberties, neither did I feel frankly about learning anything about my civil liberties. I didn't to be really transparent with you, feel like giving a sermon on how God uses all things for good and things will be okay. And frankly, I didn't care to hear a sermon like that either. I was just in a spirit really of mourning. I was sad. Ecclesiastes 3, 4 says, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance. And the last two weeks in our country were neither a time to laugh or dance. So I thought maybe it's a time to weep, maybe it's a time to mourn. The Apostle Paul told the church at Rome in Romans 12, 15, that we are supposed to weep when people weep, and we're supposed to rejoice when people rejoice. So for me, it was a time of mourning. It was a time of weeping. And as I looked at the scriptures, I thought, Lord, how can you comfort my heart in the midst of what is happening? And how can I, as a leader of our congregation, try to bring spiritual clarity or comfort to the hearts of our people? And I was drawn to Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus said, blessed are people who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Not that everything will be fixed, but they'll be comforted. And I thought, Lord, what does that comfort look like? 
What does that comfort in a situation like this look like? And as I just kind of rolled that around in my spirit, I felt like God led me to Hebrews chapter 11. And the comfort that God gave me was knowing that I will not live in a world eternally that operates like this one operates. And I will one day be at a place where children are not harmed by anyone or anything. And as I read Hebrews chapter 11, you don't have to turn there, but I think this is a great kickoff to today's message As we live in this series called The Kingdom, I was reminded, and my comfort came from remembering that the kingdom that is in me, and the kingdom that I will one day be a part of, looks different than the world that I live in now. And I read about Abraham in Hebrews 11, verse 9. I read, by faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger. If you have your Bible open to Hebrews 11, you might circle the word stranger. In a foreign country. He lived in tents. You might circle or underline those words, lived in tents. As did Isaac, his son, and Jacob, his grandson, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city. You might underline those words, looking forward to the city, with foundations whose architect and whose builder is God. I looked at Abraham, and Abraham looked around his world, and he looked at the events of his world and said, spiritually, I feel like an outsider here. I feel like things happen in the world that that don't really mesh with my soul at all. I feel like an outsider. And he was reminded that this is our temporary home, not our forever home. I'm going to live in a tent, not a house, because I'm not staying here forever. This is not the place that's supposed to totally and completely satisfy my soul or even make sense to me, because I live in a spiritual kingdom that is right now living in me and that one day I will live in. That has been the purpose of this entire series, and it will be the purpose of our entire summer at Journey, learning about the kingdom of God. We're pivoting today in our kingdom series. The last five weeks, we've been learning about the foundations of the kingdom. We've walked through five of them the last two weeks with Pastor Christian Gracia. We, because we are kingdom people. We, because we believe this place is temporary. We, because we never feel like things will, no matter what laws are passed, we never feel like things will be the way they're supposed to be here. We live in a different kingdom and we understand the condition of people's hearts. We understand the condition of the world. We understand the impact of Jesus over an extended period of time, over a lifetime. And we understand that we have to exchange everything we have for everything Jesus wants to give. We understand that kingdom people have to understand the reality of judgment. It gives us hope that bad people will be judged. But we also have to understand the hope of Jesus. God would judge us if not for the hope of Jesus in our life. And we understand that kingdom people know the reasons why people reject Jesus. And we understand that even when Jesus is working in amazing ways, people still reject him. We've learned some foundational truths of why we believe what we believe and where we find comfort when the whole world feels like it's shaking. Today we pivot and for the next six weeks we'll be looking at kingdom citizens. So we've looked at kingdom foundations. Today we're going to pivot and we're going to the next six weeks look at profiles of people who lived in the kingdom of God and see how their faith can shape our faith, see how their lives can shape our lives, see how their faith walk can impact our faith walk. And the first kingdom citizen profile we'll look at is a man named John the Baptist. That's where we're going to begin today. We'll begin his story in Matthew chapter 14 as Jesus talks about actually the end of his story, not the beginning. 
And if you've ever done a sword drill, like any of you raised in church where you went to Sunday school class and did a sword drill, like you're like, you brought a sword to church. No, like the Bible's called a sword, and you would see who could find Bible verses the fastest. Today's going to be a sword drill type of day. We're going to be all over it. If you have a physical Bible in your hand, we're going to be all over it today. Um, and I'll try to go as, as paced as I can for you to find the place without having an hour-long message. Before we ever dig into Scripture, we always pray and ask that God would open our heart as we open his word. So would you bow your heads and pray with me this morning? Just take a deep breath and let your soul settle for just a minute. And ask God to speak to your heart and to show you from the life of John the Baptist what you need in your faith walk. God, that's our prayer. We come to you heavy-hearted because this world oftentimes doesn't feel safe, doesn't feel like home, doesn't feel like a place we'd want to live for eternity. And that's because it's not. So thank you for the reminder from the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that this world should never feel like our home because it's temporary. And there is a city whose foundations make glad the heart and the spirit of God. And, Lord, we try to allow that kingdom to live in us until we live in it. So help today's message to allow us to take a step closer to that reality. That's our prayer. And we ask it today in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 14, we begin to meet some kingdom citizens. The first today is going to be John. It says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and had put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guest and it pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed because of his oaths and his dinner guest. He ordered that her request be granted, and he had John beheaded in prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. Now, there are four books in the New Testament about the life and ministry of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of them mention the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. The only miracle that all of them mention at the same time is the feeding of 5,000 people. We don't even read the Christmas story or hear about Mary and Joseph in two of them, Mark and John. Yet in all four of them, John the Baptist precedes the ministry of Jesus. As we look at this kingdom profile of who John the Baptist is, we're going to look at three areas. The ministry of John, the message of John, and the methods of John. But we're going to start, number one, with the ministry of John the Baptist. We're going to start with the ministry of John the Baptist. In the 1970s, there was an anchor man in San Diego named Ron who introduced himself to an anchor woman in San Diego named Veronica by saying, "Um, I'm a pretty big deal. Like, Like, I'm a big deal. John the Baptist is a big deal. John the Baptist is like a very big deal. He had lots of leather-bound books. Like John the Baptist was a really big deal in ministry. 2,000 years ago, most of the Jews found their comfort, their hope, their direction 
really their basic theology through a prophet named Isaiah. Isaiah was the first of 17 writing prophets who wrote in the Hebrew scriptures, and he wrote the longest. Some people think his ministry spanned more than 60 years. It started when Israel was at a high point in their nation and ended when Israel was at a very low point in their nation. But John said, it's okay, like God is going to come through for us again. In Isaiah chapter 40, there's a verse that the people of Israel hung on to because they were waiting for things to get good again. And in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, they clung to this prophecy of Isaiah looking for this guy that Isaiah talked about. Isaiah said, there will be a voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, if you happen to turn to Isaiah 40 in your Bible, even if you didn't, the words in the wilderness are interesting because often we don't read these in the right grammatical structure. Because we know a little bit about John the Baptist's story, we say it like this, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. There was a guy in the wilderness. That's not what it says. It says a voice of one calling. Here's the entire message. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. In a place of spiritual desolation, in a place with a lack of spiritual hope, in a place with a lack of a spiritual future, in a desert spiritually, tell people hope is coming. 2,700 years ago, that was Isaiah to the people of Israel. 2,000 years ago, that would be John the Baptist to the people of kind of lower Galilee and the, the eastern region of Jerusalem. Today, that's you and I. I don't know about you, but when I look at our world today, I feel again like we are in the wilderness spiritually. I turn on the TV and I feel like we are in the wilderness spiritually. I check out the notifications that come to my phone and I feel like we are in the wilderness spiritually. I talk to people and pray with them at the altar after church and I talk to people who are in the wilderness spiritually. And John the Baptist is someone who showed up in the middle of the wilderness, in the middle of the desert. Where it appears everyone had lost spiritual hope. He lived at a time and in a place and with a people who needed some spiritual direction. And he said, I can tell you where to find that. You see, that was John the Baptist's calling. John the Baptist's calling was to show up among a people with no spiritual hope. John the Baptist was to show up among a people with no spiritual vision. And he was to point them to a Savior who would change their life. His ministry was to get people with very little spiritual hope ready to see God. God told Isaiah the narrative this way. He said, in the desert, it's hard to travel in the desert. There are some holes in the road. So I want you to fill in all the holes in the road so that no one blows out a tire on the way to meet Jesus. There are also lots of little ridges and rocks in the road. I want you to sweep all those away so that no one falls over them. There are a lot of curves in the road in the desert. I want you to straighten those so that people don't get dizzy on their journey to come find Jesus. And he said, the things that would make it rough for people to find Jesus, I want you to smooth those over. See, we are a kingdom people like John the Baptist who have been told to look for the obstacles in the life of people who live in the wilderness and do our very, very best to remove those. Don't add to those. Don't dig more holes. Don't build more hills. Don't put in more curves. Don't make more rumble strips. Figure out how to help people have a smooth road to see who the Savior is. 
That was the message of John the Baptist. And we see that his story in Scripture has tons of what I would call biblical revelation where he is spoken about. He is spoken to, and then he shows up and does his job. The first of those places I call a hopeful prophecy that literally in the last two verses of the Hebrew Bible, what we refer to as our Old Testament in Micah chapter 4 verses 5 and 6. If you have a hard time finding it like I apparently am, you can go to Matthew and just turn one page backwards. The Old Testament ends with a hopeful prophecy. Things are as bad as they've ever been in Israel. They are once again in the wilderness situation. They feel like they're in a desert spiritually. But Malachi, the last of the 17 writing prophets, will say this. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents or else I'd come and strike the land with total desolation. Like it looks like things are out of control and that there's no hope, but a Savior's coming. And here's how you will know that he is here. I will send a forerunner to him and he'll let you all know it's time. It was a hopeful prophecy for the people of Israel that became a very clear promise to John the Baptist's father, Zechariah. In Luke chapter 1, we meet John the Baptist's mom and dad, Elizabeth and Zechariah, a couple who could not have children into their old age. Zechariah was a priest. He was doing his priestly duty one day, lighting the incense, praying for the people of Israel when God spoke to him and said, you're going to have a son. And he gave him a very clear promise of who his son would be in the history of Israel and in the history of the world. And what was the clear promise about, uh, about John the Baptist? It says in Luke 1, 17, he'll go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. See, there was this hopeful prophecy that the Savior is going to come, but someone will come in the spirit of Elijah first. And it was very clear, the promise given to John the Baptist's dad, that this is going to be his job. Because the Messiah is coming, this is going to be his job. It was a very clear promise. And according to Jesus, it was a job well done. Because in Matthew eleven fourteen, as we studied several weeks ago, Jesus told the people, for those of you who are willing to hear it, for those of you willing to listen, for those of you willing to receive it, John the Baptist was the Elijah to come, which means I am the Savior to come. His ministry was so important. We find it recorded all over scriptures, prophecies, promises, Jesus speaking about how well uh, John the Baptist did his job. His ministry was to get the world ready for a Savior. And his message, which would be number two on your outline, the message of John the Baptist was pretty simple. Again, we find him so often all over Scripture that I want to invite you to go to Mark chapter 1 with me. Because even though we see his ministry in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I feel like Mark does the best job of just summarizing, hey, this is what John the Baptist told people. And I feel like the look we get from what Mark tells us helps us understand very clearly what the ministry of John the Baptist was. So in Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, it says, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his weight and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, 
The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you've turned there with me, you should underline a few phrases because there's a lot to unpack spiritually. In verse 4, it says, John came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You need to know this was not how people were forgiven for their sins 2,000 years ago. You didn't go to the desert, find some water, go in it, and get forgiven. The people of Israel had never been told that forgiveness happened that way. Instead, there was a very elaborate and a very detailed system for how people were forgiven. There were a series of offerings and a series of celebrations and a series of holidays. There was the temple complex and the temple system and the temple structure and the temple workers. Like the way you got forgiveness was to take your sacrifice to the temple, to the priest. He would take it to God, tell him you're sorry, and then God would forgive you. And really only once a year on the Day of Atonement did the people of Israel really feel like they'd been able to reset their life spiritually, that they'd been cleansed from their sins. And now John the Baptist says, no, if you want to be forgiven of your sins... You need to come be baptized by me. This would have thrown off the entire religious system of Judaism. This guy saying, the way you are forgiven of your sins is to be baptized out here as a symbol of repentance. That you're not living life on your own, but you're turning to follow the Savior. This would have thrown everything off. Especially for all the people who were in Jerusalem. It's interesting because it says all, all the people in Jerusalem came out to him. These were very specific people. These were very specifically the religious leaders in the temple complex in Jerusalem. It's not that he was saying everyone left the city. He was saying those influential leaders in Jerusalem, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, The chief priests, the priests who were in charge of all the other priests, the teachers of the law, the people who taught you how to be forgiveness, be forgiven based on the religion of Judaism. Like all of these people came out to hear John and question John because here's what John was saying about them and eventually to them. Somebody's coming who's better for us spiritually than you. You see, you're you're telling us that we need you to be forgiven, but I'm telling you, somebody better than you is coming. We're not going to need you, and we're not going to need your system, and we're not going to need your temple anymore. And if you look closely at this text, you find the word wilderness. You see the word that he was wearing a garment of camel hair. You see that he was eating locusts and wild honey. We see that it's potentially... True that John the Baptist was a part of what was called the Essene community at the time, which lived in strict prohibition of doing anything at the temple. They rejected all of the temple complex and all of the temple worship. Why? For a lot of different reasons. One of the primary ones was because of the guy who built it. So we meet one of Herod's sons in this story. But you should know, not because it will change your soul, but just for the history of it, you should know a little bit of the Herodian dynasty. So Herod the Great was a man who ruled over the area now known as Israel from 37 to 4 BC. He was given his throne by the people in Rome who ruled all of the Roman Republic at the time, and he was the one who built most of first century Jerusalem. If you ever come to Israel with me, almost everything we see in Israel from the time of Jesus was built by Herod. He was indeed a phenomenal country leader, 
And he's a, he was a phenomenal builder of projects. He, he did a good job of kind of putting Israel on the map of Rome so that people would even know who they were or what they were doing. But he was a brutal leader and he was a brutal father. And today we meet one of his sons who kills John the Baptist. But let me introduce you to all seven of them. So Herod the Great had seven sons. His first three he killed because he was a madman who was always afraid that somebody was going to take his throne. This is also the guy, by the way, who killed all the babies in Bethlehem. Anytime anyone might threaten his reign, he just killed him, including three of his boys and a few of his wives who he thought were a threat to him. Aristobulus was executed by Herod the Great sometime between 10 and 7 BC. So was his brother Alexander. Antipater, who at the time would have been the brother to take the throne, convinced his dad, these two are against you, you should kill them. So he killed the top two at the exact same time. On his deathbed, he said, let's kill the third one too because he made me kill his brothers. He was a ruthless leader in Israel. Herod Philip was one of his oldest sons, Herod Philip I. He died in 34 AD. He never really ruled anything. Why is he important to this? Because he was the first husband of Herodias. And the reason John the Baptist was killed was because basically Herod Philip's brother had more leadership and authority than he did. And he convinced Herodias, leave him, come with me. I'm the more powerful of the brothers. And she said, okay. And John's like, no, 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 you can't do that. Archelaus, we know him. He reigned from 4 BC to 6 AD. He's the one that when he died, the ethnarch of Judah, Edomian, Samaria, he, he's the one who when Joseph found out he was dead, he, he felt safe leaving Egypt and coming back to Israel even though he wanted to settle in Nazareth. Herod Philip II was the tetrarch of Iduria and Trachonitis, so kind of up in Syria. He lived 4 BC to 34 AD. And Herod Antipas, who's the guy in today's story, was tetrarch, which means he ruled a fourth of the country, of kind of the northern section of Galilee and Perea. He's the guy who married Herodias, who was impressed by John the Baptist, who when he heard about Jesus said, I think this is John the Baptist, who when Herodias' daughter danced before him, and he said, I'll give you anything up to half the kingdom. She said, go tell him I want John the Baptist dead. He, he's the guy in today's story in Matthew chapter 14. And John the Baptist's message to him and to the people of Israel was really simple. John the Baptist's message was twofold. One, you have to turn from your sin. This would have made the religious leaders in Israel really, really happy. Um, hey, hey, Herod the Tetrarch, you are not allowed to marry your brother's wife. That would be inappropriate spiritually. The religious leaders would have been like, yep, got to turn from your sin. But then John would say you have to turn to a person. And the religious leaders would have had a problem with this because the person he was asking them to turn to was not them. So his message was really simple. The message was you have to turn from your sin. Like you can't. You can't, keep living, you can't keep living in disobedience to the way God wants you to live. And because you are, you have to turn to a person. We're going to meet him later named Jesus who can forgive you. In Mark 1, 7 and 8, it was pretty clear what he was saying. He didn't say go to the temple. He didn't go, say go to the Sadducees. He didn't say go to the teachers of the law. Here was his message, Mark 1, 7 and 8. After me comes one more powerful than me. The straps of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie. I'm going to baptize you with water, but he is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John was saying this. There's a guy coming who's going to be able to change you from the inside out. Because religion has not been able to change you from the outside in. I'm going to introduce you to somebody who's going to change your heart. So that it will change your life. Because by trying to conform your life to religion, that's not changing your heart. 
You're not changed from the outside in. You're changed from the inside out. So let me introduce you to Jesus. And he was telling the people forgiveness was going to be found in a person. Forgiveness was not found in a religious ritual. Forgiveness was not found in spiritual things that you did. Forgiveness is found in a relationship with a person named Jesus. Not religious rituals. Not spiritual systems. And this is where we see John the Baptist pointing us to methods of ministry that show us what it looks like to be a kingdom citizen. Like, how do we know how to live in a way that people see Jesus in us? I want to show you the methods of John the Baptist. And if you're taking notes, I want you to maybe underline the word Baptist. Because that is the very unique distinction of this guy. He could have been called John the Cousin. Because he was the second cousin of Jesus, but not most important thing about it. He could have been called um, John, the guy who lived in the desert. Because that was him. And that's, if we called him that, those of us who knew the Bible would we'd know that that was the guy they're talking We could have called him John who ended up without a head. Because he was the only one of those that did that. Like, there's a lot of different ways to identify him in Scripture. But he's known as John the Baptist. Because the methods of his ministry, watch really, really closely were you're going to repent and place your faith in a relationship? Prove that. The methods of his ministry was that he called out the things in people that could be visibly lived out from people to show whether or not they really had a faith life. He was an in-your-face guy. What What did he ask? Really two things. One, John would say that inner repentance is clearly seen by the things you surrender And inner repentance is seen in the change that you're willing to make. John will say, I'm going to call out of you the things that I can see lived out in you. Because it'll be really easy for me to see whether or not you've really changed your life to follow Jesus based on the things in your life you've surrendered and been willing to change. You say, what were those things? Go back to Luke chapter 3. I won't have you flip around very much more, but I love this. One of my favorite conversations with John the Baptist happens in Luke chapter 3. Because this thought of surrender and change is like just bolded in Luke chapter 3. Because John is baptizing and he's telling people you have to repent and you have to have a relationship with Jesus. And they're like all in. So they keep asking John this question. Verse 10. What should we do then? The crowd asks. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with one who has none. Anyone who has food should do the same. Even the tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some of the soldiers asked, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Somebody say, what should I do? See, John would say, I know whether or not you've repented spiritually based on how you approach Jesus? And do you approach Jesus with the surrender of, now that I follow you, what do you want me to change? How should I live my life? What do you want me to do? See, John said, repentance is really easy to see because I'm going to call out of you the things that I can see lived out of you. And surrender to change will show me whether or not Jesus is really in charge of your life or not. So I think one of the key questions that true followers of Jesus continually go to God and ask is, what should I do now? And what should I do now? 
And what areas are left now that I still have not given to you? What should I do now? That was the first thing that John asked his followers to do. But his second method was really, really clear. Inner repentance, he would say. Trusting in a relationship with Jesus, he would say, are going to be really clearly seen by the visible act of public baptism. Now, here's what's so interesting about what I just said and what John did. Because of my time in Israel studying Jewish history, because of my time in first century Israel, in the ruins of first century Israel, I'm going to make a statement that I believe I can back up academically. I believe everyone that John baptized had been baptized dozens of times, if not hundreds of times, some of the older generation thousands of times before. The Christian, why would you say that? Because you could not get into your local synagogue or the temple complex without going through a ritual cleansing called a mikvah, which was basically baptism. Before you could go into church, you would have to physically clean yourself off. They would have this mikvah that kind of looked like this very small swimming pool with not just steps, but a wall in the middle of the steps. And you would go down on one side. You would completely immerse yourself. You would come out on the other side. And that would clean you up enough to go be in the presence of God. That's what the Jews did. And if you've been to the synagogue once, you've done it once. And if you've been to the synagogue every Sunday for 20 years, you'd pro- every Saturday for 20 years, you'd probably do that a thousand times. So this was not a new concept, come into the water. It just had new meaning. See, there were lots of religious rituals of cleansing. There were lots of spiritual symbols with water. But real Christian baptism is somebody saying to the world, this one means that I am not living for myself anymore because my relationship with Jesus is what connects me to God. And if you're here and you say, how do I know whether my baptism was a John the Baptist baptism? Two questions to ask yourself. One, go back to the people who were at your baptism. For some of you, your infant baptism. For some of you, your join the church baptism. Ask the people who were there that day. Did you understand after that event happened that I had chosen not to live for myself and to live for Jesus because a relationship with him was my only connection to God? Did you understand that's what I meant by that? And if the answer was, no, that's just what we did at our church, that I would encourage you to have a John the Baptist baptism. So do I have to do that to go to heaven? No. But you do have to do that to be obedient to what Jesus has asked you to do, repent and be baptized to tell the world can't do it on my own. Got to do it through Jesus. At our church, we've done a lot of baptism, 751 in 10 and a half years. We hope those have not been religious rituals. We hope those have all been spiritual statements of people saying, I have decided to follow Jesus. It would take a long time to show you all 751. But for those of you trying to figure out, was the time I got wet... Was that a spiritual symbol? Was it a religious ritual? Or did the whole world understand what I was saying? And what does that mean for what I should do now? Why you contemplate that? Our band is going to sing a little song. We're going to show you a video of what spiritual statements look like. And then I'll be back to close the service in just a second. Check out this video.
This is Jeff's story. He says, I've lived my whole life the way that I wanted to live. I've seen and done horrible things. You name it, I've probably done it. Everything from drugs and alcohol to affairs and fights. Some of the things I've seen and done are difficult to put into words. I've always tried to live up to the expectations of those around me. And those expectations are what led me down a very dark path. I was hurting so bad that I wanted everyone else to hurt also. It wasn't until just recently that I made the choice to put all this in the past and live for Jesus. I do believe that He is the only way. And from this moment forward, that is what I'm going to do. I believe in His plan for me. I believe it is far better than anything I could ever wish for. He has never left my side, even through the dark times. I know that He carried me through all of this because I'm still alive today. And that is all because of Him. And if any of us have read much of the Bible, we see a whole lot of people who have made plenty of tough decisions, hurtful decisions, and we serve a God who's big enough to forgive them all. The guy who's baptizing him has made a bunch, but I'm forgiven like you. It's my honor in front of friends and family to to let them know that Jesus has forgiven you. He's your Savior, and one day you're going to live with Him. None of that stuff is hanging over your head. God sees you as if you were never saved live with a man with a testimony that has power to impact other people. You'll be amazed at how many people God can use you to touch. So it's my honor to baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Buried with Him in baptism. You're raised to walk in newness of life. You split the sea so I can walk right through it. My fears were drowning perfect ministry was unique he said I'm going to call out the things that you can live out so that you can show people where your heart is he said this to people who'd been in and out of water a lot but for the first time we're going in it to say I need to make it real clear I'm not living life for me anymore and I'm only connected to God because of who Jesus is what do we learn from John let's wrap it all into one profile a kingdom citizen is somebody who lives with courage and conviction that comes from a spiritual calling to live in a way that makes people see Jesus so clearly that they either choose to receive him 
or reject him. John the Baptist's story has both of those things. Herod rejected Jesus, but he saw him clearly because of John the Baptist. So many of Jesus' early disciples received Jesus, but they saw him really, really clearly because of John the Baptist. And starting with your baptism and then moving through every day of the rest of your life, kingdom citizens live with courage and conviction because we believe we are called to live in a way that allows people to see Jesus clearly so that they can receive him or reject him. Is that you? Is that your faith? What has God said about your faith walk to you today? One of my favorite stories in missionary history is the story of Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and a crew of five missionaries who flew into Ecuador to try to have first touch on a group of tribal Indians called the Akit Indians so that they could tell them about Jesus. They spent a year just down the stream from them, learning their language, writing their language, flying over their tribe, dropping gifts. They even gave one of the men in the tribe a ride in their airplane so he could kind of see the whole area around him. But when they finally decided on D-Day that they were going into the village, the first five men into the village, led by Jim Elliott, were ruthlessly slaughtered and the bodies stripped, sent downstream to the rest of their missionary community. But I think that's the way Jim Elliott wanted to live and die. He was raised in the upper Northwest. When he was called to ministry, people told him because of his great speaking ability that he should go and he should be a pastor of a church in America. But he said, I look around at the American church and they seem to be well taken care of. I need to go to somebody who doesn't have anybody. And he wrote in his journal one time this statement that I want to leave you with this year. You might pull out your phone and take a picture of it. He wrote in his journal, Father, make me a man of crisis. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork that men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. Make my life a life that causes crisis in other people. Because once they've met me, they have to receive or reject Once they've met me, Jesus is so clear that they have to receive him or reject him, but they cannot go on in life as if they didn't know him. My prayer for our church is that our church would be a fork in the road, that when people come to journey, they would see Jesus so clearly that they would get all in and it'd be filled with people willing to make spiritual statements, not just go through religious rituals. May God would allow us to be a place where many on facing Jesus, choose to follow him the rest of their life. In just a second, we're going to close. Before we do that, inside your bulletin is this little card that says baptism interest. When I say baptism interest, I talk about John the Baptist, baptism interest. Not a religious ritual, but a time of being baptized publicly that tells the world by your baptism, you, don't, you do not live for you, and your relationship with Jesus is the only thing that connects you to God. If you've not had that moment yet, As a church, we'd love to celebrate that moment with you. You can check two boxes, I'm ready, or I need some more information. But if you've not had that moment yet, please fill out this card. If you're watching online, you can fill this out by texting JOURNEY to 474747. We actually had one of our online church members from Iowa drive down to be baptized at our church on Mother's Day. So wherever you're watching around the world, you come to Kansas City, we'll baptize you if you've not had this moment yet and you're a follower of Jesus. If you've not had this moment, fill out this card, text the number, get in line, 
with the people on the shores of the Jordan River with John the Baptist saying maybe I've gotten wet a bunch in my life but it's time for my life to publicly proclaim now in this moment of baptism I don't live for me anymore and only Jesus connects me to God if you've never done that you can do that today would you pray with me as we consider what God has said to us today heads are bowed and eyes are closed all over the room but hearts are open let me talk to Christians first Christians, do you live with a courage and a conviction that allows people to clearly see Jesus in you? If not, would you ask him that he would help you do that and overcome fears or complacency that keeps you from that? And if you're a Christian who's maybe had a moment in your past of religious ritual, spiritual system, you kind of had to do the baptism thing at some point in your past because it was a part of their faith tradition. But it was not your story for the people watching. Would you pray about committing to take that next step so that like John the Baptist, your life may clearly point people in your world to Jesus. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, the message of the gospel is simple. You must turn from your sin to a person named Jesus and then follow him. And if you're ready today to stop living for yourself and to connect to the God of heaven through his son, Jesus, all you have to do is open up your heart and acknowledge that. If you're here today and you don't know how to pray that prayer, communicate that spiritually with every head bowed and every eye closed, from your heart to heaven, not out loud, but just from your heart to heaven, you might pray something like this, God, I can't do it on my own anymore. So today I repent. I turn from living for myself. And I turn to living for Jesus. Just repeat it after me. Forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me of my past. Heal me of my hurts. Lead me into my future. Today by faith, which means I don't understand it all, but I'm willing to put my belief in it. Today by faith, I want to become a follower of Jesus. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for saving me. Now lead me into my future. Father, we thank you for Jesus and the people around his life that give us kingdom profiles to show us how to live. Give us courage. Give us conviction. Let us have a sense of calling to let our world see Jesus clearly. Let us be crisis men and women. We don't want to be a milepost on someone's road. We want to be a fork. So that when they see us, they have to decide about Jesus. That's our prayer. And God, we ask it today in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.